Good morning again, Living Word Family Church. And good morning, good afternoon, or whenever to those uh, other guests who might be tuning in at other times of the day. Here we are again, coming to you from our safe and sanitized underground bunker in day, uh, I'm sorry, week, what, four, five of the zombie apocalypse. I've got some things to say to you, Living Word Family. Uh, but I'll save those things for the end of the message because I'm eager to get into the Word with everybody here shortly. Meanwhile, if you are watching this and you are not a part of Living Word Family Church, glad to have you again. I know like, like many people, you might be checking out a number of other services and other, other churches online during this time when churches aren't able to, to meet in person. Uh, and again, glad to have you with us today. If you have a home church, though, and you're just checking these other services out because you have the time and the opportunity, if you have a home church, I want to encourage you to be faithful and continue to support your church with your prayers, with your service, with your finances. Um, pray for your pastor. Pray for his family. Pray for the staff as they figure out how to do things differently and ask God what you can do to be a blessing to your home church. If you don't have a church home and you're within driving distance, nothing would make us happier than to have you join us when, and God hasten the day, when we assemble again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for every single person that is tuning into this, uh, this message and this service today. I pray, Lord, that you speak to all of us. Uh, we want to give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise, but I thank you, Lord, for the gifts. Thank you for the calling. We thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint my lips now, that I would speak your word clearly, accurately, boldly, and effectively. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what I want to talk to you about today is life after Easter, life after we celebrate the resurrection. This year has been weird, to say the least. We are not a liturgical church meaning uh, in this case that even under nor normal circumstances, we don't follow closely a church calendar or a particular program as we lead up to particular celebrations and days. Uh, but certainly under normal circumstances, we, there would be a little bit more of a buildup at least week by week as we move toward Easter, uh, just as we do uh, for Christmas time. What we did do, of course, was build our praise and worship song list around the resurrection. And the message I preached on the resurrection, of course, and our communion meditation was also focused on the resurrection. But we didn't have service together. I was talking to Brian Knight uh, just yesterday, and uh, he mentioned how he had said to a guy that he was really missing church. And this guy was quick to point out to him, well, you know, the church isn't the building. And he's right, of course. And uh, as a result of this lockdown, yes, perhaps many more outside the church are tuning in, uh, are, are seeing not just us, but hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel. And uh, it is exciting. Extra hits on the internet. Uh, it's exciting to see how we are able to expand our reach beyond the four walls of, of this church building. And no, the building isn't the church, but neither is this. Uh, the church is the assembly, as I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and we will assemble again uh, before I get too far off track. What I was talking about was how painful it was uh, for many of us not to be able to assemble, not to be able to gather and worship together on the Resurrection Sunday of all days. Now, this seems to be more true about Christmas, but uh, after the buildup and celebration of a holiday, uh, if we're not careful, we can slip into kind of a postpartum depression. Um, now what? It's over. 
What do we move on to now? And that's what I really want to talk to you a little bit about today. Because the entrance of Christ into the world changed everything. But the resurrection of Christ really changed everything much more. The resurrection isn't something that just happened and we check it off the list of fulfilled prophecies or whatever. It was a fundamentally world-changing event. The preaching Christ, the teaching Christ, the miracle-working Christ was this magnetic, uh, powerful, and even revolutionary figure. And I use that word carefully because he was not a revolutionary in, in the, the common secular sense. Uh, but his teachings and his life, his life certainly were revolutionary in their difference from everybody else. But the resurrected Christ is life-changing. It is the resurrected Christ we come to when we surrender our lives to him. It is the resurrected Christ that offers us the new birth. So one of the things I want to talk to you about today is this. What change or changes have taken place in your life since you met him? And this is a question that some find easier to answer than others. Um, sometimes it's easier for someone who came to Christ out of a hard, manifestly wicked background, uh, from the depths of despair, from the, uh, at, at the end of their rope. But for many of us, uh, life seemed to be going okay, pretty good. And we encountered the truth of the gospel, and we responded to it as honestly as we knew how. But since we didn't sense that much wrong with our lives... We didn't sense a great change when we surrendered to Christ, became Christians. Subsequently, we often see too many conversions that are not followed by genuine transformation. Now, this is not the central point of what I, talk, I want to talk about today, but let me stop right there and we'll come back and develop it some other time in the future. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 7, this was after the sinful woman came in. He was at Simon the Pharisee's house and this woman came in and she uh, washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And Simon was thinking, oh, if Jesus only knew what a wicked woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him like this. And Jesus explained uh, to him how this was proper and how uh, the, the point he made, and I love it, he said that, that the person who is forgiven much loves much and he who is forgiven little loves little. Uh, and this is a huge misunderstanding that a lot of folks labor under, the failure to recognize that our hearts, all of us, our hearts are desperately wicked. That even at our best, outside of Christ, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. Uh, that I need salvation, that I need Christ just as much as that drug addict, that murderer, or that Satan worshiper. And that also... When I receive him, when I confess him as Lord, I need transformation too. This is what we see in the disciples. We see the difference he's making in their lives. And let me pause here and just uh, share a little blurb with you. My wife and I have enjoyed uh, this week watching a TV show called The Chosen. Uh, it's available on, I'm not sure what platforms. You can look it up and get your hands on it, I'm sure, fairly easily. Uh, and it's a story of uh, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And there's only one season out so far, uh, but we've come to really like it because you see these very developed characters, these personalities, and we see how they're changed when they meet Jesus. Now, you got to be careful. This is a TV show, and because it's slow-paced, it's not just a dramatization of the scriptures. They're filling in a lot of gaps, and they're taking creative and imaginative license. Uh, so you got to be careful. You gotta, it's best to know your scripture. I haven't seen anything that blatantly contradicts anything I've read in scripture. And I really like, again, the personality and the presentation is better than any other 
TV show or movie that I can remember in my life. So check that out. Um, but uh, we've talked about it many times, and we talked about it most recently on Palm Sunday, that the disciples of Jesus Christ, though they loved him, though they longed to be with him, they still had it in the back of their minds that he was there. Once they became convinced he was the Messiah, they, they were convinced that he was there to overthrow Rome, to put Israel back on top, back into their glory days, as it were. And because they thought that, I've often wondered, uh, for example, if Peter, uh, in the garden, the arrest, when Judah comes, betrays Jesus, and the soldiers move in to take Jesus away, that's when Peter draws his sword and slices off the ear of Malchus. And I think maybe Peter being Peter, thought, this is it. This is the moment. We've held back. We've waited for a moment, but now they're literally getting ready to put their hands on our Messiah and take him away. This must be the moment we're waiting for. Let's go. Let's fight. And Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter. And he puts Malchus's ear back on and he's led away. So we do see, on one hand, some transformation in the lives of the disciples when they were with him. But when he was crucified, then they were kind of lost. In Luke 24, you can read about how a couple of the disciples were walking to Emmaus, talking about the crucifixion, the empty tomb, and so on. They were still trying to figure this out. And Jesus appeared and started walking with them, but they didn't recognize him. Part of this, I'm sure, was because he was in his resurrection body. He looked different. And part of it was because uh, he just uh, was hiding himself, in a sense. He hadn't revealed himself who he was yet. Uh, and he says, he comes up to them as they're talking about this and says, I heard you talking. What are you talking about? Explain it to me. And they're like, buddy, where you been? You must be a stranger because everybody in these parts knows what's happened in Jerusalem over the last few days. And they talk about Jesus and what a great man he was and how he was a prophet and how he'd been arrested and crucified and buried. And then and there, here's the telling verse. In verse 21 of Luke chapter 24, they said, but we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And you can just read the disappointment in these words. Now, thank God, we get to go on and read about shortly thereafter, Jesus revealing himself in their presence, opening the eyes of their understanding to him, to what the scriptures had said concerning him, and so on. My point is that these disciples who had left all to follow him and who had lived and ministered with him, had their lives changed by him, they were on their way to going back to the way it was before, to the way they were before. You take a guy like Peter, bold, loyal, ready to fight and even die with and for Jesus, so he said. And he had already denied Christ, even knowing Christ. And this was before the crucifixion. Things weren't going according to their plans. It wasn't going according to their expectations. So they were at sea. And who knows what their lives would have been like had Jesus waited longer to reveal himself. One of the most compelling arguments and evidences for the resurrection, as a matter of fact, is that this group of men, according to very reliable tradition, all went boldly to their deaths in defense of the gospel. They never denied the resurrection. I'd say all of them, most of them did. Judas didn't, obviously. And John, uh, by all accounts, uh, lived to a ripe old age and died of natural causes. But the other ten uh, died horrible deaths and, uh, and never recanted their account of the resurrection. And this is important because 
people have for centuries postulated this notion that uh, the disciples, since they had so much at stake, uh, they stole the body and they hid it and they pretended that Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, but if that were true, look, there's no shortage, no matter what people tell you, there's no shortage of evidence that people are willing to die for things that are not true. Most religions have their martyrs. Uh, so the fact that the disciples were willing to die is not evidence in itself that the resurrection is true. But to die for something that they knew to be untrue, that's unthinkable. They went to their death not because just because they were under orders, certainly not blind faith, but because they had a real encounter with the risen Lord. And that's the kind of transformation I'm talking about. The same Peter that wanted nothing more than to follow Jesus into battle against Rome was the one then who stood up and preached repentance to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and saw 3,000 people saved. I've used the term fluid many times in the past few weeks to describe our circumstances, especially in the early days of these uh, of uh, the coronavirus being on the scene and how day by day, you know, their e the email updates I was sending out reflected the fact that we did not know what tomorrow was going to hold in terms of the rules regarding getting together, regarding sanitation, travel, everything else. But you want to talk about fluid. Look how quickly things changed for the early church. One day, there they are, scattered, scared, uh, depressed and confused, and the next day they're rejoicing that he's alive. Not long after, after, after that, uh, 120 of them were gathered together privately in an upper room. And a little later, they're out in the streets praising the Lord in other tongues and drawing a crowd. And 3,000 people were added to their number, then thousands more shortly after that. You talk about explosive church growth. One day, they're hunkering down, waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus talked about. And soon afterward, they stroll boldly into the temple. And on the way in, they heal a, a crippled beggar. One day they're out, they're, they're working out how to spread the workload because this church is growing so fast and they have so many people to minister to, uh, this rapidly growing Jewish congregation. And then before you know it, a Gentile gets saved. Their world was truly turned upside down by this because, wow, it was almost unbelievable the, the effect, the change that's happening there in their Jewish society. And now, and they had to think, oh, wait, wait a second. He, he did say the whole world, didn't he? And what made all of this possible? The baptism of the Holy Spirit made that possible. That produced boldness and it did something else. Jesus said, look, look at Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 19. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This was after he had sent the 70 out. This was before the crucifixion and resurrection. He'd sent them out two by two to do ministry together. And they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. In Mark chapter 16, we read, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. 
They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And uh, finally for now, in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, taking these passages together, we see that Jesus promised authority, power and boldness to his disciples and they walked in it even back in luke before again before the resurrection before the crucifixion even back in luke they walked in it for a little while but again they withdrew after the crucifixion really after his arrest but after the resurrection and especially after pentecost we see them living walking ministering in the full manifestation of that authority that power that boldness listen I'm not saying there's one right way to present the gospel. Paul wrote uh, that he became all things to all men, that he might by all means win some. He wasn't going to approach somebody without a background in Old Testament law with the law. He would, he would take a different tack. But I'm saying Peter didn't stand up on the day of Pentecost and said, please, you guys, just come give Jesus a try. See if he doesn't make your life better. No, he preached a convicting message, and before he got to the altar call, they were crying out, what must we do to be saved? Peter and John didn't kneel down uh, next to that crippled beggar at the gate and say, and then start pleading with God saying, oh Lord, if it's your will, please heal this poor man. They grasped him by the hand and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. When we talk about the authority of the believer, we need to remember that it was Jesus who said, the works that I do, you will do, and greater works than these, because I go to my Father. That statement alone ought to embolden us. Now, people have often mischaracterized the word of faith. Uh, the word of faith message. And frankly, I'll admit, some word of faith teachers have misrepresented it. No, but listen, no reputable teacher that I'm aware of has ever taught that the word of faith means that you and I, anybody, can speak things into existence in the same manner that God did back in Genesis. What we teach in a nutshell, or what we should be teaching in a nutshell, is that God, if God has spoken a promise, there is power when I speak in agreement with that promise. Not just mentally agreeing, but speaking in agreement. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. Surely, too, there is health and sickness in the power of the tongue. There is lack and there is supply in the power of the tongue. There is boldness and timidity in the power of the tongue. Are we going to speak what God has spoken over us, or are we going to speak what we're experiencing and feeling and uh, back and forth day to day as our moods change and our circumstances change? I want to speak in agreement with the promise. What does this have to do with life after the resurrection? A couple of things. One is more general, and one is more spe a specific application to our current situation. First of all this, if you are saved, it is because you have had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. 
Maybe it was a dramatic encounter. Maybe it wasn't. But if you responded to the truth of the gospel, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And if you have had an encounter with him, how can you not be changed, transformed? We must be careful about slipping into legalism. But come on, there should be a difference. The difference we want is to be protected, to be healed, to be uh, provided for. We want the abundant life that Jesus talked about. And God has promised those things. But he has also commanded us to be holy, to imitate Christ, to love one another, to love our neighbor, to pray without ceasing, to be free of greed, to be slow of anger, uh, to eliminate coarse speech from our vocabulary, to honor our parents. These are not things that we do in order to be saved. These are things that the Holy Spirit, that God works in us because we are saved. It doesn't happen all at once, not usually, but this is part of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But we must be willing to submit to those changes. We cannot expect to experience the healing, the abundance, the protection. We can't expect to walk in authority unless we recognize that we are also under authority. The authority that we have as believers is a delegated authority. It's not our own. We do, we do not command the world to be like we want it to be. What we do is respond to circumstances in our lives and in the lives of those to whom we minister according to the word of God. Which brings me to the second point, the specific one. Do we, as believers, have the authority to command COVID-19 to simply dry up and blow away? Can we simply speak death? Can we curse that virus? Do we have that kind of authority to simply command that this disease cease to exist? Because many people are calling for churches and pastors to join them in doing just that. And I'm not criticizing, this is not the point to criticize them. Some of them are, are friends of mine, all right? And I've, I've even prayed along those lines. But I was praying about it and thinking about it. And I'm just, I'm convinced that there are more angles to this that we perhaps haven't considered. So, for your consideration, Jesus did say, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. But clear reading of scripture dictates that there are built-in limits to that declaration. Listen, when we defend healing, we've often pointed out that cessationists, those who argue that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today, say that if you believe in healing, why don't you go to the hospitals and empty them out? Why don't you just heal everybody? Well, and our answer has always been this, because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus healed the lepers, but he didn't go into the leper colony and eliminate leprosy from the region. He didn't go and wipe out all sickness and disease, but he healed all. He healed everybody who came to him for healing. Psalm 91, which has been copied, pasted, posted, and quoted more than any other scripture over the last several weeks, says that even in the midst of pestilence and destruction, we would witness people falling on our left and right, but that we would be safe. You say it won't come nigh thee. Well, if they're falling on my left and right, that sounds pretty nigh to me. But according to scripture, we are safe in the middle of that. That no plague will come near our dwelling. But it doesn't say the plague won't exist. Remember that God took Noah through the flood. The grace that Noah found in God's eyes did not grant him the authority to pray the flood away. 
We have a promise that God will supply all of our need according to his riches and glory. But Jesus himself said, you will always have the poor with you. So we obviously cannot universally rebuke poverty or sickness or death. Jesus didn't do that. What he did do was have his needs abundantly supplied. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. Also think about this. People who are chafing under this lockdown, and believe me, I have more and more questions every day. I am beginning to question the wisdom of at least some of the specifics of this thing. And I hope we, we arrive at some answers quickly. It's one more encouragement to pray for those in authority it's because they're wrestling with the same things. Uh, but several of the people, because yeah, I read you know, all these different posts and notes and uh, things that are sent to me in my inbox and everything else, uh, but they've said, look, why are we making such a big deal out of COVID-19 when still worldwide, year by year, more people die of cancer, they die of heart disease, they die of diabetes, accidents, you name it. Okay, if that's how you feel about it, well then why don't we simply start uh, coming against all the cancer in the world or all the accidents in the world or all the diabetes in the world? Why haven't we been speaking death and destruction and cursing these diseases worldwide? Can we eliminate global heart disease with the words of our mouth, spoken in faith, backed with the authority of Christ? No. And we don't even usually think of it in those terms, because sad as it is, and this, it, it is difficult when, uh, when these things touch you or your family. Uh, but most of us on a day-to-day -day basis are not dealing with these things, even though they do kill millions of people a year. And now this thing comes along, and even though the vast majority of us are not infected with this, we have been affected by it. So now we want to take authority and curse this disease out of existence. It kind of makes me think of Job. Remember, he was going through all of this stuff, this, this horrible suffering that the devil had brought into his life that God had allowed to come into his life. And he was asking all these questions and challenging God specifically about his justice. How is it right that these bad things happen to a good man like me? And when God answers him out of the whirlwind, one of the main things he brings out is this. Look, Job, there are a thousand things that you don't understand. And you've never bothered to care about them before. You've never challenged me about them. You've never asked me about them because they didn't affect you. Only when it affects you have you begun to ask and challenge me on this stuff. Listen, we cannot declare by faith that there will be no more earthquakes in the world, no more tsunamis, no more tornadoes, no more volcanic eruptions. We cannot, by the words of our mouths, cast every demon into hell for all time. Again, Jesus himself didn't do this. I spoke about this recently, uh, but when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said that the prayer for supply was, Give us this day our daily bread. Shortly before that, he said, take no thought for tomorrow. You know, there is protection, there is healing, there is supply, along with new mercies every single day. Take it day by day. Did Jesus, here's a, here's a more specific uh, question and a good one. Didn't Jesus, in fact, though, rebuke the storm and calm the seas? Yes, he did. But for one thing, this was likely a demonically inspired storm. This was probably a specific attack on Jesus in this boat because where was he going? On the other side of the lake, he was going to deliver a man who was 
uh, possessed by a legion of demons. Well, is COVID-19 a demonic attack? Well, let me say this. I do not believe that it is God that is doing this. All the evil and all the pain and suffering and destruction on earth is ultimately traceable back to the fall of mankind. In that sense, it's certainly demonic. And I also agree that it's different. There's a difference between something like cancer and heart disease versus a communicable disease, a plague, a pestilence. But guess what else was contagious? Leprosy. All right. Where does, where does all this leave us? It leaves us here in a fallen world, but not as prisoners in this fallen world. We are here in this fallen world as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are here not to rebuke every single thing in the world that makes life unpleasant, but to declare liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and so on. We are to be walking in the midst of the destruction around us without fear, standing on God's promises of healing, protection, and provision. There has been a lot of talk about the last days in these last few days. Um, how this thing could be the thing or the precursor to the thing that ushers in, for instance, a cashless society, the mark one world government. You have probably heard every single one of these things. And I'm not saying this is it. I am saying that suddenly we can see very clearly how quickly and easily all of this can take place. So the question is, what if this is it? Can we rebuke the last days? Can we stand in faith against Daniel's 70th week? These things are going to happen. But God's promises are irrevocable. He has told us there will be trouble, and he has given us authority in the midst of it. He knows how to take care of us, take care of his own in the midst of that trouble. The fulfillment of God's promises of healing, protection, and provision were never meant to rest on the United States medical, the healthcare capabilities and system, or the military, or the economy. Those are great. Those are great manifestations of his blessings, but that's never where our trust and our dependence was supposed to rest. It's time for us to put up or shut up. Let's continue to walk in boldness, in authority, and in faith. And then the peace that will rule in us will be a light in the darkness and cause others to be drawn to Christ through us. If we are going to stand against this virus, let's do it God's way because I'm not saying that there's nothing we can do scripturally. There has been damage done to the world. There's been damage done to our land. And damage continues to be done. In addition to the actual death toll, there's been a tremendous economic loss, increased divisiveness politically, and the nation has become sick with fear. But God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, well, verse 14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I believe it's not too late to see this land healed on behalf of those who pray 
of God's people. This whole nation doesn't need to turn to God, but God's people need to turn to him in humility, turn from our wicked ways, seek his face, and uh, then speak in faith what that verse says about healing over our land. Uh, And I pray not only for the healing of this land, but that people would know where that healing came from. If a mayor or a governor wants to thumb his nose at the efficacy of prayer, let him. All right? But I pray that God opens their eyes, not only to what God has done, but to how much they need him. Meanwhile, again, we can and should be walking in the manifestation of the promises of God and in the peace that results from that, uh, from, from, from in that, walking in that kind of faith. That kind of faith and that kind of peace will speak to others. Do you desire that kind of relationship with God? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? Because God has made those promises to his people and he has made that relationship possible only through the finished work of his son Jesus Christ at the cross. I mentioned earlier that there is not one person who needs it more than anybody else. And there is not one person on earth who deserves it more or less than anybody else. Jesus Christ died that all might be saved. But it starts with recognizing that you need a Savior. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me close in prayer, and I will include at the end of this prayer something that you can pray along with if you desire to make that decision today. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time together and for every person tuning in. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that you fill us afresh with your spirit, with boldness and with the conviction and the peace that comes with trusting you completely in the middle of these confusing times. I pray that all of us, Lord, will learn to truly hear your voice and act wisely based on what we read in your word and hear from you in our times of prayer. I pray now for the, 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 the man, woman, or child who might be listening to this right now who has never made that personal commitment to you, has never personally surrendered their lives to you, that you would touch them, Lord, that you would move on them and draw them to yourself as only you can. And if that's you uh, out there today, if you would please pray this with me. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus. I need a Savior. I I see that now, that no matter how good I try to be, I can't meet your standard, that everything I struggle against is because my heart is desperately wicked. I thank you, Father, for giving your Son. I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Come into my life. Come into my heart and be my Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, we want to hear from you. Let us know. Before I sign off here, uh, I want to, uh, and and Matt will uh, share something with you here shortly about how to uh, uh, give you some details, uh, technical details about giving. And uh, so stick around for that. But I want to encourage you, Living Word Family Church, and I want to thank you, Living Word Family Church, first for being such a great church. Uh, Your notes and your texts and your phone calls and your emails and your Facebook posts, all these things mean a great deal, and I find them very encouraging on a daily basis. And I am daily blessed to hear how I'll call somebody or reach out to somebody, and through the course of the conversation, find out that you are calling one another, checking on one another, and praying for one another. Keep doing that. Keep being the church for one another. It's Jesus who said that it is our love for each other 
that's going to speak to the world about who we are, about whose we are. I also want to thank you for your faithfulness in bringing the tithes and the offerings. I know a lot of churches right now are struggling uh, with that issue, that specific issue during this season. And I feel bad for them. I feel bad for any believer that thinks, uh, well, there's no church, hasn't been any church, so I guess I don't owe the church anything. I don't have to pay. I don't have to give uh, because we didn't have a service. Uh, And I feel bad for pastors who, as a result of that kind of thinking in their flock, have to worry about salaries, not just theirs, but for their staff. About They have to worry about keeping the building and grounds maintained. And uh, perhaps most tragically, they have to worry about uh, fulfilling commitments that have been made to ministries and missionaries around the world. And I need to stop feeling bad and start praying for those people and for those pastors. Because not only are they hurting their own church family, they're hurting themselves. I quoted a verse in my sermon earlier about how God supplies all of our needs. And I do believe that's a promise we can claim, but I want to look at it just for a minute here in context. In Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says this, Nevertheless, you have done well. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's something to think about. Yes, I believe the heart of that statement is a promise that we can claim by faith, but it was clearly written specifically to a church that had partnered with Paul and committed, had generously given to his ministry. So be encouraged by that if you are giving, and Living Word family, most of you are. Be encouraged because there is a blessing for you. If you're not, if you've been uh, reluctant to give, especially during this season, uh, then be challenged by that and know that God is not slack concerning his promises. Listen, we love you. We are continuing to pray for you. We absolutely can't wait to see you again. God bless you. Hey everybody, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for being a part of this church family, of this body of Christ. We are excited very soon, hopefully, to come together again with you. Just like Pastor Scott said, it is such a blessing to see how tithes and offerings continue to come into the storehouse, continue to come into the church to support what Living Word Family Church is doing in our community and in mission, uh, with missionaries and, and, and uh, other ministries all around the world. We are excited to continue that support even through this challenging time. If you are interested in giving online, you can do so by going to our website, livingwordfamily.org, and in the top right corner, you'll see a link that says Give. That will take you to Tithely, uh, which is an online giving platform that we that, that we use. Uh, you can also go onto your App Store or Google Play and download the Tithely app there. 
get everything set up and you'll be ready to give in a matter of minutes. It's very easy to do, simple, safe, secure. You can also mail a check. You can get onto your bank account and, uh, and set Living Word Family Church up as, uh, as one of the automatic checks that you send out um, on a weekly basis or what have you. Any, whatever way is easiest for you, we want to be able to, to be there and, and, and receive that from you. So thank you for being such a blessing. If you have any questions on Tithely, on how to get it set up on Tithely, feel free to email uh, email me, uh, go through the church website, uh, fill out that contact form, and I'd be more than happy to walk you through that process. Thank you again. We appreciate you. We love you. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the amazing faithfulness that you have shown us, continuing to provide and meet our needs, Father God, even through this uncertain time. Also want to thank you for the amazing, amazing church family that we have at Living Word Family Church, and thank you for the awesome faithfulness that they are showing and continuing to send tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Father God, for the work of the kingdom, and we thank you for that. We thank you that your faithfulness will shine on them as well and shine on all of us who continue to give. We are excited about what you have in store for us in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.